0: I'm open here to Luke chapter number 22, where we read a few moments ago. I'm going to direct your attention to just one of those verses, and we'll read that. We'll have a word of prayer, and then we'll look into today's message. Could I direct your attention, please, to verse 49? Look at the question that we find here. When they which were about him saw what would follow, they said unto him, "'Lord, shall we smite with the sword?' Talk about a question, Lord, shall we smite with the sword? We've tied into one here this morning, and I trust that the Lord will bless us and guide us and give us some insights and helps as we look at this together. So let's have a word of prayer, and then we'll do that. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord's Day. We thank you for bringing us all safely here. And uh, thank you, Father, for uh, journeys, mercies to church here this morning. Sometimes not always easy to drive uh, in in the rain, but thank you for getting us all here safely, and we pray for journey's mercies as we co- go to and from today um, from our services, and also pray for any who may be away and traveling that you'll watch over and bless them, uh, some whose names have already been called we know are not feeling well today and have uh, physical setbacks and infirmities. We pray again for them. Lord, please just bless them and restore them to us. That's our our fervent prayer. We delight to see them here. We delight to be able to fellowship with them. We know that that's what they would want as well. And so uh, in due course, Lord, when it pleases you, we just commit this to you and bring it to your attention once again. Pray you'll bless those that are caring for the children back in the other rooms now during uh, the junior church time. And for each of us here in the sanctuary, Lord, I just pray you would bless and open your word to our hearts and our hearts to your word. Lord, I pray that you would just give me facility of speech and clarity of thought and mind here this morning. Uh, Clear away those things that don't need to be there. Fill with those things that should be. And uh, may the same be true for every listener, Lord, as it's so easy for so many different things to intrude into our hearts and minds and uh, little things that uh, it's it's very easy for us to be robbed of the blessing as we sort of go down those byways that we don't really need to go down during this time. so just encourage us, I pray, and give us wisdom as we listen and wisdom as uh, as we speak today. We pray in Jesus' holy and wonderful name. Amen. Lord, shall we smite with the sword? Of course, we're continuing on with these questions. They asked him this, that people asked Jesus. This is one that the disciples asked Jesus. Not uh, told which particular disciple may have voiced the question, but it's kind of interesting because, uh, once again, this... This particular question is contained only in Luke's gospel, and the reason I say that that's interesting um, is because it's obvious that all of the gospel accounts include the story of Gethsemane, Jesus' um, betrayal by Judas, uh, his arrest, his time uh, in, it, with the disciples before all of that happened, with the uh, Last Supper, these different things, all of the gospels give us an account. And a lot of the details that we find here are in the other stories, but it just simply doesn't record anywhere else that they coughed up this particular question. Another really interesting thing is, is if you analyze this, and this sort of makes it, I think, a little bit more of a challenge, really, in preaching a message like this today, and that is that Jesus never really got a chance to answer the question. And the reason that Jesus never really got a chance to answer the question is because because before he could Peter jumped into gear and uh, acted before he heard what the Lord might have to say, and we'll sort of leave it at that. That's just the fact of the case. I'm not here to to criticize Peter this morning, but uh, I do think you I do think it's honest and fair enough to say that we all have personalities, and Peter certainly had a personality, and many many times the word impetuous. Has been, in use to, has been used to describe Peter, and I think it's accurate. It's, it's, you don't have to be critical to say that. It's just accurate, and certainly we see a good example of it here. So if, if you kind of find yourself maybe a little bit more prone that way, then you have an ally here, and you can be encouraged, and you can kind of see some of the things that went on in the life of Peter, but we're all going to look into that here today. Now, I think with this particular question, we have a tiger by the tail, And the reason that I say that is because you're talking about swords. And of course, the sword was in the society of the first century exactly what guns are to us today. So the moment you bring this question up, you obviously have a controversial subject. And unfortunately, you also have a highly emotional subject. It's also a subject over which even good Bible-believing people have different takes, So, in dealing with this, what I want to do this morning is to try to be absolutely as fair as I possibly can to the record. Uh, That is, what's revealed in the verses as they progress, as well as what we find elsewhere in the Bible. Hopefully, I can get this done without making someone mad. But uh, I I certainly trust and pray that you will uh, do exactly what we're exhorted to do in Acts of the Bereans to search the scriptures daily, whether these things are so. And if you have some further light or a question or something you'd like to, to share with me later, I'd be more than happy to hear that. I don't claim to have all the answers, but I have certainly prayerfully considered uh, the subject and doing my best this morning to be as honest as I can to the Scriptures. Since we don't have the Lord directly answering these quest, the question that's been raised, I think the best way we can profit by this is, first of all, this touches on what I was just saying, trying to be as true and honest with the record as we can. I want to go over and be sure that it's clear in all of our minds exactly what transpired. More specifically, I want to draw your attention to the number of times that evening that the sword or swords were mentioned, because I think as this unfolds you begin to get a little better feel rather than just taking the isolated question. Also, although we hopefully, I, I think, we will be able to avoid doing a lot of turning unless you would just like to see the verses. I might do that in some cases. We also have all of the other accounts, and some of them give a little piece of information here, something Jesus said there that maybe is not recorded in the one that's before us. And that all has to be factored in and weighed so that as you try to get the exact as possible progression of what happened and what was said exactly at what juncture, that all has a bearing, I think, on where we can go with this. That's important to have fixed clearly in our minds. So that's the first thing I want to talk about. Then I want to talk about what we can learn. And I think we can draw a few conclusions here, uh, make a few observations. Uh, I think we can certainly, at the end of the message, depending on how much time we have, we can also go to Scripture elsewhere to see what help we can We can get in addressing this subject, but um, uh, that's what we'll be doing in the message this morning. So, what exactly happened? Well, I think there's a lead up to the question that's asked in verse 49. It doesn't just come out of the blue. That's really the important thing to see here. They don't just haul off and ask, Shall we smite with the sword? with no context as a background. If you back up in Luke's gospel to chapter 22, verse 36, here you will find the first of a couple of earlier references to swords. And I think, again, it's impos- It's very uh, um, important to look at this and evaluate and understand what's going on. So what does it say here? Then said he unto them. Well, let's back up and read verse 35 so we get a feel for this. He said unto them, When I sent you without purse and scrip. Scrip would be like a knapsack, something like that. When I, when I sent you with uh, without purse, that is money. Uh, and script, no no supplies, no, no uh, backpack. And shoes, lack ye anything? And they said nothing. So now the Lord's going to kind of draw a contrast because these are all remarks that are given in order to prepare them for the fact that things are going to change rapidly now, right? Because they have been used to ministering while he was there with them bodily, he has sent them out on preaching missions. He had trained them. And actually, this question here is based on instructions he gave them on one of those preaching tours that they weren't to take all these different things. They were to depend, to depend on the supply that would be given to them in the places where they went. And he was teaching them faith and God's provision and all of those types of things. So it, 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 it starts there. But then he said unto them in verse 36, but now, see, things are going to change rapidly with the crucifixion and all of that. And he that hath a purse, let him take it. And likewise his script, and he that hath no sword, let him sell his garment and buy one. Well, that's an interesting thing for the Lord to say, isn't it? And again, you might be surprised just how much discussion back and forth and different ideas over there are over what exactly the Lord was trying to say to them. Did he really want them to go do that, or was he simply trying to make a point? That's kind of the, the two key things that people go back and forth over. Was he really telling them to go do that, or was he simply trying to take uh, an extreme case, so to speak, and say, you know what, you're going to encounter situations so perilous in the days to come that it would be worth e- actually selling your garment in order to buy a sword. Well, I don't you you know, I'm not going to argue with you th- over this, over what which whichever way you would want to go with this, but we do know this, at least two of the disciples carried them. So, how do we know this? Well, we drop down to verse 38, let's read again verse 37. For I say unto you that this that is written must yet be accomplished in me. And he was reckoned among the transgressors, for the things concerning me have an end. Notice now verse 38. And they said, Lord, behold, here are two swords. And he said unto them, it is enough. So again, you'd be surprised just how much people go back and forth over three little words, it is enough. What exactly was the Lord saying there? Was he saying enough of this talk? Was he saying Two are enough for what I have in mind. Was he simply saying that, okay, we don't need to pursue this particular subject anymore, that maybe they hadn't completely understood what he was trying to say to them in verse 36, and the Lord just wasn't really ready to get into a full-fledged conversation in a direction that they were thinking that maybe wasn't so much what he was thinking. All of these are ideas that people have. I'll, I'll try to confuse you if I can. So, so, so just hang on. And uh, what we, I do want to try to unravel it for you and try to chart our way through this in just a few moments. So here are some lead-up references to the swords. Then now you have to realize that as the evening progresses, and Jesus has warned them, remember, that, some, that one of them is going to be his betrayer. And then all of a sudden, they become aware. Peter, James, and John seem to have kind of, you know, drifted in and out of sleep when all of this is going on. But all of a sudden, they wake up, and it becomes clear to them that a multitude of people are there. They're being led by Judas. And even though in Luke's account, we're given the deal the detail afterwards, in the other account, we're given it right away. But, it you know, chronologically, this would be before what goes on. What they see is what governs their thinking. And so you see this detail in verse number 53. Jesus says to them, when I was... See, Luke tells us this later, but it's obvious this is what they saw at this point. Um, When I was with you in the temple, ye stretched no forth... I'm sorry, verse uh, 52, I want. Then said Jesus unto the chief priests and captains of the temple and the elders, which were come to him, but be ye come out as against a thief with what? Swords and staves. So we, knew, we know that when this uh, multitude of people that were sent from the included soldiers uh, came with the, from the high priests and Judas was leading them, he was the one who was going to give them the sign by kissing Jesus and betraying, we, we know that they were heavily armed. And so think about it. Put yourself in the position of the disciples for a minute because I think that's how you have to do this. Jesus had said something earlier in the evening about... Well, the time is coming, maybe you want to consider having a sword all right They then say, "Well, we have two jesus said well that that'll that's fine he doesn't doesn't seem to want to really talk about that any longer and then all of a sudden, they see this multitude of people coming. they're armed it's it's a it's apparent they have swords, and it like in their mind. I think they're thinking, is this what you're talking about? Is this what you're talking about earlier? That, that we need to smite with the sword? Is this one of those times that you're talking about? And unfortunately, uh, as I say to you before, um, Peter didn't wait for Jesus' answer, but he drew his sword. And it's interesting that uh, Mark, or rather Luke's gospel that we're looking at here, Luke's the physician, you know, so he's precise with the details. He tells us that Peter cut off the servant of the high priest's right ear. So he makes it it plain in verse number 50, which ear it is. But he leaves out Peter's name. John's the one that rats on him. So if you were to read John's gospel, chapter number 18 and verse number 10, then you would find out that the one who did this was Peter. So two of them had swords, and, and obviously one of them was Peter. And when Peter saw all of this, even though the others chirped up with this question, Peter didn't wait. He just acted. And what happens at this point? Well, according to Matthew 26, 52, and this is one of the examples of this, but um, the others say the same thing. Jesus told him to put away his sword into its sheath. So Jesus did tell him to put the sword away. And then in the end of verse number 52 of Matthew um, chapter 26. So if you want to read this or see this, this is fine. But here's what it says in the verse. Then Jesus said unto him, put up thy sword again into its place. And then the last part of the verse gives us kind of one that makes us pause for thought. What's he saying here? He says to Peter, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. Now, we also know in the context of this that he's also said this to Peter. He's also said to Peter, do you think that I can't right now pray and the Father will send 12 legions of angels to protect me? But then he goes on and asks the question, but how then shall the scriptures be fulfilled that thus it must be? So Jesus seems to be saying to Peter at this point look, spiritual causes are not advanced, nor are they defended by carnal means. That, look, the issue here is that the scripture must be fulfilled. Jesus must be obey the scripture, he must do his Father's will, he must drink the cup. It says this in John chapter. 18 and verse 11, The the cup which the Father hath given me, thinkest thou not uh, that I will drink it? This is the paramount thing to Jesus. The spiritual issue that's at hand is the overriding issue. Jesus does not need, nor does Jesus want, Peter to protect him. Because what's going to happen that night is already predetermined. Jesus has already, in eternity past, covenanted with the Father to come to this very occasion on this very night and to submit to everything that happened there and go to the cross to willingly die there for you and me on the cross of Calvary. So what Peter was doing was not needed. That's about as far as I'm willing to go. Many people um, say that the Lord rebuked Peter. I'm not willing to go that far. I would say that at best what you have here is just sort of a mild... Uh, admonition uh, to kind of get Peter thinking along a different wavelength. But as you could well guess, many people who are kind of emotional or hostile, and and there are certain elements of Christian interpretation that are pacifistic. I'm sure you realize this. There are certain denominations that that just take a pacifistic approach to this. So this, this is a really a live wire issue. But I think that the Lord at most is simply telling Peter, you're on the wrong wavelength here. This is not one of those times, this is a a wholly different consideration in a wholly different matter. And that's why I think when you get to Luke twenty-two fifty-one, 51, now see, again, this is a, a bit of a job to patch all this together and get all the things that are said here in order, but then also to bring in the other things that Jesus said that are recorded in the other Gospels. Now, verse 51, it says, after one of them smote the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear, and we've we've already said what Jesus now said to Peter after that happened, but then Jesus said something that only Luke tells us here in verse number 51. And Jesus said, answered and said, suffer ye thus far. And he touched his ear and healed him. What's that mean, suffer ye thus far? Well, if we were going to put this in just common, ordinary layman's English of today, it would be something like this. This would be <clears throat> about as literal as you can get it. And I say that because again, some some people kind of... Uh, Get a little, uh, Take a little bit too much, I think, of an interpretation with this. I'd rather stick with what the words say and not read my preconceived notions into it. It would simply be, let even this, allow even this, allow even this, which is kind of what he's been trying to tell Peter. Look, you've got it wrong. This is not one of those times that I've been talking about, and this is not a time that I need your intervention. This is a holy spiritual matter and a holy spiritual consideration. And I keep saying that, and in just a few moments I'm going to give you more information as to why I keep saying that. The very next thing that happens is exactly what Jesus knows and allows and wants to happen. Look at verse 54. Then took they him and led him and brought him into the high priest's house. So he allowed them to arrest him. Okay, we kind of got this somewhat in our minds now as to what's going on here. So let's move to the second part of this and ask what we can learn. Well, again, I make the statement going into this, in truth, Jesus never responded to the issue that we really want him to talk about because the issue that we really want Jesus to talk about and settle is the issue of armed resistance or I guess if you were to put it more personally, personal defense, self-defense. That's kind of what we think is going on here. That's kind of what we want him to talk about. But as I say, he doesn't really get a chance to answer the question. Instead, he gets a chance to respond to what Peter does. And there is a difference there. It's not just a semantic thing. It's really kind of an important thing to see how it all progressed because the Lord didn't have time to give the kind of answer that you and I are probably looking for here He did have time to respond to what Peter did, and that's kind of how it went. And that's, as I say, that's that's not insignificant. That's an important distinction. All right, let me tell you some things I think you can safely say from this. If you disagree, fine. I won't be upset with you. I only ask for the same in return. Okay? Number one, I can't see any circumstances under which you can actually say that Jesus condemned swords in general, or he would not have permitted the disciples to carry them. That to me seems self evident. I don't see how, really, how you can explain that away. It's obvious that the disciples carried them on occasion. It's obvious that they had them on this occasion. When Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword again into its sheath, it's not something Jesus didn't notice. You know, I guess in our society you would call that open carry because, I mean, not that that you couldn't have these assassins that would hide a dagger or something, but the kind of sword that Peter had, that it was not something that you really, it's not a concealed type weapon. Uh, So if, if the Lord really went in the direction that some people seem to want to represent that he does, then it seems you have an inconsistency here with him allowing the disciples to, Uh, have swords and carry swords. Secondly, if the disciples did misunderstand what Peter was saying in verse 36 when he said unto them, hey, the time is coming, now maybe you want to consider selling your garment and buying a sword. If the disciples really, if if Jesus didn't really mean that and the disciples got a wrong impression of what he was saying, then neither did he correct that. When you get to verse thirty-eight, he doesn't comment on it any longer. He just, when they say here are two swords, he just says it is enough. He doesn't really, if 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 the under, if, I guess if the I guess what I'm trying to say here is is if the misunderstanding is so significant. In other words, if they've gone off in the direction of thinking of literal swords and owning one, having one, or whatever, if that's so wrong you would have thought if that's really the direction this was going, that Jesus would have addressed that. He does not. So that's, I think, a second thing that we can say. A third thing I think that we can say is, and maybe you think this is a small thing, but if someone is emotional about a subject, if someone has very strong feelings about a subject, usually it comes out, right? And when Jesus did this, I mean, this was not a small thing that he did when he pulled that sword out and cut off that man's ear. Well, Jesus did not issue any harsh rebuke to him. He said, put your sword away. He didn't say, throw it away. He didn't say, Peter, get rid of that, or something of that nature. He just told Peter calmly, put it away. And any admonition that he gave Peter had to do with basically understanding that Peter's actions were inappropriate under the circumstances. That's really what we can say about this. What he did say to Peter in that statement that I quoted a moment ago from Matthew 26 and verse 52, that the person who takes the sword shall perish with the sword. Let's talk about that just a little bit more now here. What he's telling Peter in that statement, I think, is that this is neither the time nor the place. This is not one of those occasions like I might have been referring to in verse number 36 and you, have to, you cannot interpret Matthew twenty-six fifty-two b You cannot interpret that where Jesus says to him, for all they that take the sword shall perish with the sword. You can't interpret that fairly and accurately unless you take it in the context. It's just, that's just improper dealing with the scripture if you do that. All right, so what is the context? Well, all right, look. This confrontation is all spiritual way 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 more than it's any kind of a normal physical confrontation. Beloved, there's a big difference here between what's happening and why do I say this? It we're told this and this is why I had us read this da- down this far in the scripture. What does Jesus say about what's going on that night? Verse 53 When I was daily with you in the temple, ye stretched forth no hands against me, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. So, what's going on? Is this really the type of issue where. Let's draw this difference. Let me see if I can draw it this way. You're a preacher. And you're on your way to a meeting. And you stop at Sheets or someplace for gas. Someone tries to hold you up. That's one context, right? Another context is you're a preacher and you're having a street meeting and you're the one who's speaking and some guy comes up to you and starts yelling curse words at you and even starts pushing you and telling you to shut up. Do you see the distinction that I'm drawing here? One situation calls for one set of responses and one calls for another set of responses because one circumstance is just purely what goes on in this world. It's purely the evil of this world. It's a fallen society in which we live. The other this comes about as a result of the gospel. This is doing the work of the gospel, and in that particular instance, I wouldn't feel it to be appropriate, and I can tell you I've been in those circumstances before. I wouldn't really feel it would be appropriate to pull a gun out. That's me, but I see a big difference in the circumstances, and I think that's what he's trying to tell Peter here. He's trying to say, look, this is not the time. You, you've you've gotten it wrong. This is not one of those times. This is a completely spiritual matter that's within the purview and hands of the Father. This is for the gospel's sake. And when we have the work of the gospel going on, we do not resort to carnal means to do the work of the gospel, whether it's in the name of defending the work of the gospel or advancing the work of the gospel or any other. And if you think about it for a moment, there's a lot of disastrous examples of the very kind of thing that I'm talking to you about right now. You know what? Right now, the Crusades are a blemish on the reputation of Christianity that probably will always be there. Why is that? Because here were people who were attempting by the might of the sword to bring Christianity to people. But, you know, that's not how the work of God is done. It's not how the work of God is done in those contexts, and it's not, you can, you can make any application off of this that you want. The weapons of our warfare, Paul says, Second Corinthians 10.4, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, but mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. Every day we face a spiritual warfare. Every time we try to serve God, we face a spiritual warfare. We don't respond to that the same way that we do the other warfare that we're in or that we can be in. It, it's just, it's, it's a totally different thing. And it's kind of interesting to uh, take note of some different comments that different people have made on this. Of course, they're a legion, but the one that I wanted to pass along to you this morning was made by Alexander McLaren. and he was a, a 19th century Scottish expositor. And he had this to say, he said, when the church takes the sword in hand, it usually shows that it does not know how to wield it. And as often as not, has struck the wrong man. To which we might add, boy, there is a huge difference between Peter with the sword on the night in Gethsemane and Peter with a different sword on the day of Pentecost. And that's the distinction that's going on here. You know, earlier I was interested... um, in the Sunday school, Lee had mentioned about Jim Elliott and company and the uh, uh, Ecuador. They were killed in, I think, 1952 by the, you used to call them the AUKUS. Now you call them the, the Uh People say now that AUKUS is a, is a pejorative term. And, but anyway, whatever. I guess if you can avoid offending people, Weirani is fine. But did you know they had guns? Maybe you didn't know that. They did. In fact, uh, Nate Saint, who was the first one to receive a spear when, the, when they started throwing them, had a gun on him. But you see, the five men, and some of them came from some brethren gra- background and so forth, so you can always say that there was some influence that way, but uh, they had covenanted together. They, they had this discussion ahead of time. What would their response be if they were attacked in the context of trying to reach these people for Christ, they agreed they wouldn't use their weapons for that. Now, they fired them in the air to to try to deter and scare, but they would not use them in self-defense if the context were the context that it turned out to be that day on that little beach, that it was the preaching of the gospel, it was the work of the kingdom that was going on. There's a big difference between that and all of a sudden someone busts into your motel room some night and starts to come into the room and threaten you. There's a huge difference in the context and circumstances and the principles that apply. That was their decision. That's the way they chose to handle that. And I, I, for one, am not going to criticize them for that. Peter, what do you suppose would have happened to Peter that night if he had proceeded where do you suppose that would have gone? Alexander McLaren said, when the church has taken the sword in hand, it usually shows it does not know how to wield it. Well, I think Peter knew how to wield it, but can you imagine if Jesus hadn't intervened the way he did and healed that man's ear, what would have happened when they were facing that contingent of Roman soldiers and that, all those thugs with staves and swords? Peter had been mowed down. I don't know, maybe Peter felt constrained because earlier in the evening he'd said that he was ready to go, verse 33, earlier in the evening he told him, he said, Lord, I'm ready to go with thee both into prison and to death. Maybe he felt he had something to prove. I don't know. But on the broader issue, so that's what I can tell you about this. Um, On the broader issue of self-defense, if you want to talk about that for a few minutes before the message closes, because now everybody's got all kind of thoughts rolling around in their minds, this is the best that I can put it to you from the Scripture. If you think you have a better thought, by all means, let me know. But I think this is the best that I can summarize what I think the Scripture says, and that would be to say that the Bible assumes this right rather than addressing it directly. And that's why we kind of wished. Aren't there a lot of places when you really wish you had an exact verse? I mean, you know, we, we start dealing with the sometimes with the modern charismatic movement. We say, "Oh, if we just had a verse," you know. And some people think they have one in 1 Corinthians thirteen eight. And you know, but you know, there's so many complex questions that the Bible just doesn't give you a direct. Precept, a direct verse that tells you the answer you're looking for right then and there. Personally, I think that this is intentional. Because I think if you search the scriptures, you won't go without the light that God can give. Because the Bible speaks, and this is one of the reasons that the Bible is a living book. It speaks both by precept. If you lack the precept, it speaks by principle. And you have the principles. And I personally am of the belief there's no real question like that that you're going to address to the Bible, that if you do not pray about it and search the Scriptures enough, you will find some direction. And you know what? This is part of God's genius because the Bible is a book that's ancient, really, by modern standards, and yet you can't really throw at me any issue that with enough study and enough time, I might not have the answer, but I can find you somebody who's put time into it and does. And it all's coming from the Bible. How, how can the Bible address things that, that weren't even in existence in its day? How can the Bible be living in that and not out of date? And it's because it's a book of principles as well as a book of precepts. So here are just a couple of things to think about. If you don't mind, let's look at these couple of verses. I think that it might help if you see these. And I've just chosen some. There, there's a whole lot more. Number one, how does the Bible address this? It addresses it by example. You've got tons of examples of this kind of thing in the Bible. And you'll see why I phrased it, why I did a moment ago, that it's simply assumed. All right, so something about the sanctity of human life in Genesis chapter 14, if you want to turn there for a moment. Verse 13, we're going to read as well so you get the flavor of the story. But it says, There came one that had escaped and told Abram the Hebrew, for he dwelt in the plain of Mamre the Amorite, brother of Eshcol, the brother of Aner, and they were confederate with Abram. That is, what did they tell him? That these kings had come down and seized Lot, took Lot captive. What does it say Abraham's reaction was? Verse 14, And When Abraham heard that his brother was taken captive, He what? (laughs) Okay, you can read it. He armed his trained servants, born in his own house, 318, and pursued them unto Dan. Didn't think twice. Bible doesn't go into a lot of precepts on it. You just have the examples, time after time after time given. Never anything negative said about those things. It's as if they're just assumed Let's turn over to another example. Let's go to the book of Nehemiah. So you're going to have to start kind of questioning the spirituality of a lot of people if the Bible doesn't assume the right of self-defense. Nehemiah chapter 4, look there. What did Nehemiah do when these people were threatening the Jews, these outside people, as they were rebuilding the walls? Verse 13, Therefore I set, therefore set I in the lower places behind the wall and on the higher places. I even set the people after their families with swords, their spears, and their bows. Hmm. It's like Nehemiah had any convictions against it. All right, let's look over at one more. The book of Esther. Like Esther and Mordecai, didn't have any problems either. Let's go over to the book of Esther. Remember the story. They were going to, Haman and all that crowd, were going to destroy the Jews. Verse number 11 of chapter 8, find that. Wherein the king granted the Jews which were in every city to gather themselves together and to stand for their life. See, this is a different context. This is standing for your life. This is not offensive. This is defensive. Uh, To stand for their life, to destroy, to slay, to cause, to perish, all the power of the people and province that would assault them, both little ones and women, and to take the spoil of them for a prey. Upon one day in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, namely upon the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month Adar. So there are three, and many, many other examples could be given. I'm going to do one more thing. I'm going to ask you to turn back to the book of Exodus, chapter 22. I find this maybe the most interesting verse in the whole subject to play with. Because you have the examples, I just gave you three, there are many others, and now you have principles. So here's a verse from the law that gives us certain principles. And I find this fascinating because it is so up to date in what it gives here. In fact, you'll find that a lot of our law today comes out of so much of this. So look at Exodus chapter 22 and verse two. If a thief be found breaking up, And be smitten that he die, there shall no blood be shed for him. What's the difference? Read the next verse. If the sun be risen upon him, there shall be blood shed for him. For he should make full restitution if he have nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. In other words, you don't just have carte carte blanche to shoot people because there is such a thing as the sanctity of human life. But the Bible makes allowance for the fact if this happens at night, where you cannot reasonably, reasonably ascertain that the, that the thief is simply a thief and, and does not pose to you, other than stealing your goods, does not pose to you any grave and imminent threat of bodily harm or death, and you shed his blood under those circumstances, you're in trouble. In the nighttime, you don't have the opportunity to, especially in those days, I mean, you don't just go flipping on electric lights and, and all that kind of thing and ascertain what's going on. You don't know whether in the dark this man's armed. You don't know what his intentions are. And so in this particular case, and what does modern law have to say? Well, modern law is very interesting along this line. I'm sure many of you have looked into this. I know I have because I think it's my responsibility to know what the law says in this respect. But essentially, modern doctrines of self-defense and our laws that are built on them give you the right of self-defense if you reasonably believe that, that the use of deadly force is immediately necessary in order to prevent someone else from inflicting on you either grave bodily harm or death. And you know, the whole key to the whole crux to this whole thing is reasonably believe. It's what you reasonably believe. It's what a jury's going to find that you could reasonably believe to be true. Why is that? Because you can't always prove everything that's going on. And I'll tell you what, there's some awfully difficult circumstances that sometimes come up before people before, where people reach in their pockets, or people have some nondescript-looking item. You can't quite tell what it is. It rests and falls in a jury trial on whether or not they feel that you reasonably believed that you were about to suffer grave bodily harm or death at the hands of this person. That's the modern doctrine of self-defense. And it's interesting, too, that castle doctrines, which have become popular in many states now, relieve you of the obligation to retreat within your home and so all of these things, this is where they come from. This, this verse in Exodus really sort of gives um, so much to this because I think, and this is where I want to leave it, it hits what I think is the balance. You know, I, I just, and I'm amazed at how many times balance, I, I have said this over the years in ministry so many times, I, I could retire if I had $5 for everyone. But balance is really the watchword of the Christian life. What is it that we have to balance here? Well, you have to balance empowering someone who is truly threatened on the one hand with condemning someone who just is trigger happy. And that's what these verses do. That's an amazing balance, really. So I want to end the message here with asking you a couple things to think about Different principles, I think we can reasonably conclude, may govern life in a fallen world and doing the work of the Lord. Those are two different contexts. You run a store, somebody comes into the store to rob the store, it's not like you're preaching the gospel. It's a different context, right? So different principles may may govern life in a fallen world and doing the work of the Lord. I think that's a reasonable statement to make. But I think you can say this about both of them, and it comes right back to what I was just saying. We can always say that there is a balance. Trust the Lord, but prepare. You know what? Over time, you can certainly find that as being the aggregate wisdom of society, you know? (laughs) And I'm going to give you some verses in a minute. We'll close with the verses. But I want to tell you a couple of things first. You know, there is an expression that that came out of the revolutionary war and I'm sure you'll remember this but it was basically this trust god but keep your powder dry and and what's that except a man's way of putting that balance trust god but keep your powder dry or this is my favorite in something a little bit more up to date there's you know in 1987 Ronald Reagan signed with Gorbachev the leader of the Soviet Union the INF treaty. You know, an INF was the Intermediate Range Nuclear Forces Treaty. And in December of 1987, when they met to sign this treaty, Reagan said something to Gorbachev about trust but verify. Reagan's the one that popularized that phrase, trust but verify. And when he said it, Gorbachev responded to Reagan and said, you repeat that at every meeting. And Reagan's response was, I like it. But the interesting thing about it is, trust but verify actually comes from a Russian proverb. How apropos. But it's difficult to to really negotiate with people and to really come out with treaties if you don't trust them. But on the other hand, some of them don't always bear a lot of trust, so you set up proper safeguards. And beloved, listen to these verses and see if you don't see that same balance coming through to us in this same context of our lives, this same decision. Proverbs, or Psalm 20 and verse 7 says, Some trust in chariots and some in horses, but we will remember the name of the Lord our God. What's that? Trust God. Don't lean on the arm of the flesh. Trust God. uh, Psalm 127 verse 1. Uh, except the Lord keep the city except the Lord build the city the, the laborers in vain except the, Lord, uh, keep, except the Lord keep the city the watchman waketh but in vain so the watchman is there that's the one side of it but the Lord is the real protector Proverbs 22 verse 3 the prudent man foreseeth the evil and hideth himself, but the simple pass on, and it says are punished. That's repeated in Proverbs twenty-seven and verse twelve, and in Proverbs twenty-one thirty-one, the horse is prepared against the day of battle, but safety is of the Lord. Do you notice the the balance that's in these verses? It doesn't say you don't have the horses and the chariots, it's just that's not your ultimate trust. It doesn't say you don't have the horse, but it's that you recognize that safety is ultimately of the Lord. Can't we apply this in our own lives, beloved? That balance of understanding that maybe ultimately ask yourself this question maybe ultimately who ultimately who has the responsibility for your and your family's protection if you don't mind I'll philosophize for just a moment at the end you or the police just a question to think about ultimately who has that responsibility you or the police but if you make the decision that this is something that's important and this is something that you need to take some responsibility, this is something you need to take action, at least do it responsibly. But then when you do it, who are you really trusting in? You've got to make sure that no matter what measures you take for the security of your family and the security of your own person, that ultimately your trust is in the Lord. That's, that's where it really needs to come out. And, and that, look, here's the whole point. They're not mutually exclusive. They're not mutually exclusive. It does not betray a lack of trust in God to take responsibility for things that pertain to me that the Bible has given me. On the other hand, it's presumptuous to just figure, oh, I'll be fine. Shall we smite with the sword? You know the answer yet? God bless you, each one. Father in heaven, we thank you for your...